How's everybody doing? Right on. I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David Hurtado. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. Kind of new to this family here. And so uh, if you're new, so am I. Welcome. Glad you are here with us. Uh, we've been going through this series uh, uh, calling Worthy, a series on worship and kind of going back to the truths of Scripture about worship, what worship is about. Pretty pivotal for our church right now as we consider where we're moving forward, how we're going to be moving forward in this area of musical worship. And so um, it's been an awesome, awesome ride. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. This is one of those pen and pencil uh, pencil and piece of paper or notepad time uh, days, uh, as far as this message is concerned, there's going to be a lot of flipping, a lot of different passages, so have your Bibles ready as we jump in. But first I want to ask a question. Have you ever heard of the poem, Footprints in the Sand? Have you ever heard of that? Even, yeah, you're aware of that poem, Footprints in the Sand? We don't quite know who wrote it. There's a big dispute about who wrote it. People try to claim it, uh, I'm sure, because they want royalties. But... Um, the Footprints in a Stand, in case you haven't heard it before, I want to read it to you. I think it's going to be uh, impactful. It's been impactful to me in my life, and I wonder if it might be impactful to you. It says this, One night I dreamed a dream as I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the dark sky flashes, uh, flash scenes of my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one belonging to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that many times along the path in my life, especially the very lowest and the saddest times, there was only one set of footprints in the sand. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you, once, uh, you, you said once I follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I noticed during the saddest and the most troublesome times of my life, there's only one set of footprints in the sand. I don't understand why. And when I needed you the most, you left me. He whispered, my child, I love you and will never leave you. Never, ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, that is when I carried you. Isn't that beautiful? Um, to me... This uh, poem helped me a ton, especially as I began my journey with God, as I began going from no God um, to speak of in my life or no God that made any, really, any real difference in my life. I don't know if I could describe it that way. I knew of a God, but it didn't make any real difference in my life. As I went from that person to this person who embraced God, this story would help me a ton. And the reason it would help me a ton is it, it began to help me try to figure out and make sense of my life. How, if there is a God, how does this God measure up with, with all the things that have happened in my life? Uh, for instance, I've told, for those of you guys who maybe weren't here at the beginning, I've told many of you, had a dad who was very brutal in nature and, and, and in practice. Just a brutal man. Uh, had parents who divorced, ending all the ideals of family and any kind of positive parental supervision that I had in my life. Uh, I remember my father uh, dying from brain cancer, a disease that took him too slowly. I don't know if you can relate to that. I remember a mother who was violently attacked and left within an inch of her life. And here is a story that says that in the midst of the hardest times, God is carrying you. And it really ministered to me as I was trying to process my life with God. I'm going, okay, so somehow God was carrying me through those times. Those difficult times, the hard times. However uh, far-fetched it sounded, it was still so encouraging as I'm embracing this God to know that, that he knows what he's doing. That some, somehow he knows what he's doing. 
even though I don't quite understand it. Somehow, when he feels like he's so far away, he's really closer than I realized. It's a beautiful poem that kind of gives us that idea in our mind. And I wonder if you have ever struggled with that yourself. As you process through your own life and, and, and you look at what has happened thus far from your beginning till today and you say, where was God? And you try to bring God in that picture. You ask the question, were you near or were you far away? Were you near or were you far away? Are you near or are you far away? You ever dealt with that? Are you dealing with that right now? Maybe you're in the midst of um, earnestly praying and seeking and you're not seeing the prayerful results you'd like to see. That future spouse hasn't presented his self or herself yet. That job opportunity that's going to be so awesome for you and your family has not presented itself yet. The, the resurrected marriage that you've been praying for has not resurrected yet. The turnaround situation in your child, whether they're young or whether they're grown up, has not turned around yet. The inability to retire, like genuinely, like truly retire the way you had hoped, it's not presenting itself. And so in these times, you ask yourself, are you near God or are you far away? Which one are you? Where are you? Which one are you? And today we're going to tackle this apparent paradox, this idea that, that God can be far away, but that he's near at the same time. How does that even work together? We're going to tackle that idea, and we're going to see it fly front and center in this realm of musical worship as well. Is God far, uh, how is it that God can be so far away at times and yet be near or close at times as well? Which one is it? Is he near or is he far? Is his desire to come close or to remain distant? What can I expect of God? Will God draw near to me and draw close or should I expect him to remain far away? And for that, we're going to be in your Bible. So I need you to open it up right now. We're going to be all over the place today. So this might be one of those where every other one you look up and the other one you look on the screen, uh, I'll permit it, uh, and Jesus is watching, and, and, and you'll have to deal with Jesus on that one. But the point is, open up your Bible, make sure whatever I'm saying comes straight from this Word of God. We're talking to the elders. Hey, we believe in this thing. Uh, as we talked about, this, 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 is, this is our guide, okay? So I have nothing to say besides what's in here. So please measure what I'm saying to what is said in the Word of God. We're going to start in Isaiah 55. All right, and we're going to kind of go on a journey, and these passages are going to build and build and build on each other until we hit this climax of the end. So I promise you it's going to be a fun ride. Uh, you're going to love it, so join me with it. It's uh, Isaiah 55, verse 8. You'll see on the screens it says this, Why does God seem near and yet far away at times? Why does God seem near and far away at times? We're going to tackle this idea, and we're going to first look at this idea that God, a God who is set apart, we talked about this in recent weeks as well, that we have a God who is set apart. He's higher. He's of a different class. He's above my pay grade. He's transcendent is the doctrine. He's bigger than me. And so he is set apart. He is distant. He is far in relationship to who I am and who he is. I am finite. He is infinite is the idea. And so we're going to look at this God who is set apart. Let's start at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's a difference here. Uh, he is higher, I am lower. 
We talked about this, I think it was last week. He's higher, I am lower. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't understand his thoughts. I can't comprehend them. He's higher than me. His ways are higher than mine. He's just a supreme being is the idea. That's who he is. Let's keep on going. Let's go to Isaiah 40. Turn with me, Isaiah 40. We'll look at verses 20 through, 22 through 26. It says this. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. How many of you guys were here last week? I likened people to ants. Was that last week or the week before? doesn't matter. The point is, I was pretty close. He calls us grasshoppers. Makes me feel better. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and his people are like grasshoppers. In relationship to him, we are like insects. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes, uh, princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? We sang a song that they said this. Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. O crea- all created, who created all things? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Again, we're looking at this relationship between us and God, and God is definitely set apart. He's a higher being. He's of a different class. He's, he's supreme. He's way up here, and we're way down here. And he says he's enthroned above, and in comparison to him, we are like grasshoppers. Rulers of this world, they rise and fall at his whim because he's in control of all things. No one is equal to him. He's created everything, and so everything that he's created is below him. Because he's supreme. In fact, he knows the stars by name and he keeps them floating in the right spots. And none of them ever goes awry. According to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is holding the whole world together. This is the transcendence of God. A God who is set apart. A God who is different. Who is higher. It's the argument against pantheism, the idea that there are many gods and, and all of them are equal together. No, no. The God of the Bible says, I am supreme. I'm higher than anything I've ever created. I'm the supreme being. I'm the one and only God above every other God. I am transcendent. He is higher. We are lower. And in that sense, he's far away. And that's why some of the examples in the scriptures make sense. Like that time in Exodus chapter 3 when, when Moses goes and he sees the, 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 the presence of God in the form of a burning bush. You remember what happens there? And all of a sudden it's like, Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. This God is to be revered and placed high. And you know what? You're standing before the very presence of God. Take off your shoes. You've got to recognize who he is and where you stand in relationship to him. We see it again in Matthew chapter 17 when the disciples and Jesus is transfigured on a mountain. Write it down. You can look it up later. And he's transfigured. And and we see this unbelievable show of power. And the disciples are like, hey, let's set up tents. And God's like, shut up. That's what he says. Well, I didn't say that. That's my translation. But the idea is, this is my son in whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's where I got the shut up. Listen to him. And you know what the disciples did? They fell straight on their face on the ground because of the mere voice of God the Father. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. He's higher. I'm lower. He's higher. 
I'm lower. I don't deserve to even hear his voice. I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. I don't deserve it. And so there's a sense where, yes, he is a supreme being. He's higher. And I am lower. That is true. Transcendence of God, the idea that he is distinct from creation. He's higher than it. He is above it. He is better than it. He is set apart from it. That is what the word holy means, to be set apart. God is holy. He's set apart. And we are called to be holy like he is holy. We are called to be set apart as well. Set apart from what? We should look different from everything else in the world. Why? Because God is different from everything else in the world. We should begin to look like him. We should make progress in there to become holy, to be set apart for him. Do you know that the very utensils in the tabernacle, in the temple of the Old Testament, uh, if they're using a spoon in, in, the, in the worshipful environment where, in, where, where they would, their setting, uh, their building, uh, whether it's a tent or in the tabernacle or, or in the temple, if they're using something for the purpose of worship, it was set apart for that purpose. So if I used a spoon or use a utensil in the sacrifice for God, that utensil, that very utensil was consecrated for that use in the temple and no other use. And why does that make sense? Because he is set apart and he is holy. He deserves his own utensils. We don't double dip on these utensils and use them for dinner and for sacrifice. No, no, no. The, 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 the very items in the temple of God were consecrated, set apart for him because he's a holier being. So that everything, and, 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 and by the way, they spared no expense of this. So it would be silver and gold, and this one, we're consecrating it and blessing it and cleansing it only for the use of God's purposes. And why does that make sense? Because he's supreme. He deserves his own, his own tools to be reserved for him. He is higher. We are lower. They are to be set aside and reserved for him. Ironically enough, this is kind of the spoiler alert, Okay. <laughs> Ironically enough, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and we haven't had a temple since. And so there are, no more, there, are no, there are no more of these utensils that have been consecrated and set apart and, and made holy for God and God's purposes. So, so, so what is set apart for God now? Who are the utensils? That's right. It's us. We become what is consecrated. The, what, what, the idea that was, what was set apart in the Old Testament is now us. That's a spoiler alert. That's where we're headed later today. We're consecrated for what? For his worshipful use. And that's a beautiful thing. So we see God is higher. He's holy. He's set apart. He, he's transcendent. He, he's of another class. He's supreme. He, he's above my pay grade. All those things. He's above us, before us, greater than us, better than us. In that sense, he's far away, but he's not a God that stays far away. He doesn't allow his transcendence to, be, to, to allow us to feel like he's so far away. No, he comes close to us. He, he draws near to us. He says, I'm going to actively pursue you, even though I don't have to. I, sh- I don't need to. I'm a supreme being. I'm going to pursue you. And that is a doctrine of his imminence. And so number two today, we're going to say, a God who comes close. It's a doctrine of imminence. It's not like the Eastern religions that, that say that, that God is unapproachable and, and God is not personal, uh, like Hinduism or, or Buddhism, that God cannot be approached on a personal level. No, the God of the Bible says, I will approach you and become personal. I want you. I will draw near to you. I'll show you. 
He's a near God. He's not a far God. He's imminent. Let's go to Exodus chapter 40. Turn there if you can get there. Exodus chapter 40. We'll look at verse 33. Now this is, the, this is where we're going to start having fun now, all right? Uh, 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 Exodus chapter 40, verse 33 through 35. Just two small verses. It's on the screen if you can't get there. It says this, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was a tent where they would, where they would invite the presence of God, where they would worship him. Before they had a physical place with a foundation called the temple, it, it served the same purpose before the temple. It was a tabernacle. And so this is a tent place. And so in the courtyard around the, t- the tabernacle and the altar, they put up a curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. So they finished this tabernacle. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the meeting uh, because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we see this cloud representing the very glory of God filling this house of worship, so to speak. So they built this temple. They consecrate everything in the temple. They clean it. They pray over it. This is only for you, God. And and then they invite God in, and God says, I will come in. And he comes in the form of a cloud representing his glory, and he fills the temple. Or Sorry, that's the tabernacle. Let's look at the temple, though. The same thing happens in the temple. Go to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Second Chronicles chapter, I promise you we're going somewhere with this. Follow me. Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 13 says this. The trumpeters and the singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Okay, that's what we call musical worship. Okay, so their musical worship is happening accompanied by the trumpets and the cymbals and other instruments. Okay, so all kinds of different instruments can be used to worship God. They raise their what? Voices in the praise to the Lord ended what? Saying. And this is what I keep on coming back to. All over the scriptures, when you watch, when you see the, the worship of God, you're going to see singing. You're going to see singing. Okay? Uh, that's the one thing that is consistent. In, in the Old Testament, New Testament, you're going to see singing. And so when you want to worship God, you would consider that probably what's going to happen is going to spurn my heart and there's going to be something that comes off my lips and, my, and I'm going to sing. And so here we have this worshipful environment. They're singing. They're singing things to God. He is good. His love endures forever. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with what? A cloud. And the priests could not perform their services because the cloud was so thick. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Here you have it again. So you have it in the tabernacle. We're going to set this place aside for you. It's a special place of worship. And then we're going to invite you in. All right? Now this is a special presence of God. Why? Because God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is here right now as much as he is in China, as much as he is in, in Russia. So he's omnipresent. But for some reason, when you build these, 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 uh, a tent or a building and you say, we're going to set this apart for you, the very tools in every one, of these, uh, every one of the tools inside these buildings will be set apart for you. God says, I will reside there. And I'll come in the form of a cloud and you'll be able to sense my glory amongst you. In fact, you won't even get your work done. Because it's so thick with the glory of God. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. All right, now we're going to go to 2.0. You ready? All right, flip over 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is where it gets dope, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Check this out. As you turn there, we have this tabernacle. 
It's a, it's a place where, 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 where you know, we can pick it up and go. So wherever the nation of Israel goes, we can put up, we can still have a worship of God. And then we're going to go over here, then we can set up the tent and the tabernacle, and we have the worship of God. We're going to go over here, and we can set up, okay, boom, we have that. God represents himself in his glory in that building. Then they got an actual foundation. They built this, this temple thing. And then God says, I will show up there as well. I'll be in the holy place right in there. And God shows up there. But now there is no more temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We know according to history, Jesus predicted that it would be destroyed and no stone would be left unturned on it. So where is he now? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's what? That's not hitting you yet, so we're going to say it one more time. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? All right. Let's consider this as sacred space. So where was sacred space in the Old Testament? It started off in a tabernacle. We can move the tent from here to here. Wherever we go, we can have sacred space go with us. And we can be assured that God is traveling with us. And sacred space is in that tabernacle. All right, that shifts at some point when God, they get their promised land, they build a temple, Solomon builds this temple, and when he builds a temple, God says, I'll reside there. Sacred space is in the temple. We've talked about the temple a little bit and the different courts that are there. So, hey, here's, here's your connection with God. Here's your place where you can connect with God. Remember early on in this series, you said worship is not about a place, it's a person. Remember that? Because something happens when Jesus Christ died, that temple is destroyed, and now sacred space changes from a tent into a physical place, or a physical foundation with walls, and changes into the very hearts of believers. Sacred space is in you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, sacred space is now in you. So when you ask the question, where is God? He's everywhere. He's omnipresent, yes, but he's also specially present in you. All right, we're going to take it up a notch. The you there is not a singular you. It's a plural you. All right? And I have told you guys this before. It's very, you know, it'd be like us saying y'all. We don't say that because we don't want to sound Texan and crazy. So we just say you, and we understand sometimes it's singular and sometimes it's plural, right? Well, in the Greek, you can see exactly what it is because it changes the form of the word. And so he goes out of his way to say, you all, and he does it twice. Whenever you see um, um, uh, the idea of you yourselves, you hear, don't you know that you yourselves, that means it's written in the emphatic. What they're trying to do in English is they're trying to say, hey, in the Greek, it's written emphatically. The you is there twice. And he's making a point, you yourselves, emphatically speaking, you guys, you all together as a community, plural together, are the very temple of God. All right, I got to explain it because nobody's tracking me yet. So, sacred space was in a tabernacle that moved from place to place. And then sacred space went into a physical building, the temple of God. And then somewhere along the way, sacred space changed when the veil was torn and Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. Now sacred space is in my believers. And when we collectively gather and we worship God, the very presence of God shows up in the room. Like a glory cloud in the Old Testament, just sitting on top. 
to say, hey, I'm with you guys. I haven't left you. That's when we get together and we do this thing we call church and we gather in a worship service or a worship gathering. Service kind of says you get served. Gathering, we gather together. That God can show up in our midst because we together collectively are the temple of God. We are sacred space for him. That's the beauty of what we got going on and the beauty of the New Testament church and the beauty of what you and I get to participate in every Sunday morning. All right, we're going to take it up another notch because we're not done yet. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, this one's going to blow your mind. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. All right, we're just kind of doing a, a study on, on the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, it's resting like a crowd, the very glory of God resting his presence in different places. Sacred space was in a tabernacle, then a temple, and now it resides in us. And that cloud can come over us, and we can sense the very presence of God. Why? Because he's imminent. He's not a faraway God. He says, I'm going to come and draw close to you. I'm coming near to you. Now watch what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 23. Here it is. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced of all that he's a sinner and be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will lay bare. And so he will fall down and worship God, explaining, God is really among you. All right, so here's what's going on. You have this passage. You guys are talking in intelligible words, and when a visitor comes in, nobody understands what you're saying. It'd be like me doing the service in Korean or Spanish, and none of you guys know that. And so it would be unintelligible to you. What's going on? He says, I want you to do things in an intelligible format when you meet together. Because when you meet together, you collectively are the temple of God. The very presence of God can rest in the room when you meet together and you do things intelligibly. And in that worship service, a visitor, an outsider, can walk in the room. And say, because of what I'm seeing around here, because of the way these people worship God. But what we just did earlier, and, and, and Kelly backed away from the, from the microphone, and we can hear voices, that something about that dynamic in this gathering together, that somebody who is not a, an insider, an outsider, a, a guest, would walk in and go, oh my gosh, God must be here. Like I can sense God here. He's in the room. And they fall on their face and worship God like they were Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3, like, like they've heard the very voice of God in Matthew chapter 17. And they go, oh my gosh, God is in the room with us because of what I've experienced in this room. I sense that he's here with me. And you know, we're already hearing stories like that right here at Camarillo Community Church. I just heard one recently. I, I, I'm, I'm new to this thing. I don't know very much about this faith. I don't know very much about this God thing, but I just know when I'm in the room, I sense that God is there with me. And I don't want to leave. I remember I had a student years ago. Gosh, he's got to be like 27 or something now. He was a junior hire. And we would go to Hume Lake, and we would take 40 
church kids and 40 non-church kids who didn't know God. And this kid was a non-church kid. We do this bungee soccer thing. We get all these kids to go to winter camp with us. And he came. No no spirituality speak of representing his life. His parents don't know Jesus. His family didn't have a long-lost relative who's praying for him to know Jesus. Him and his five buddies, they're all going to camp with us. And and, and I would tell all the parents, we're going to talk about Jesus. So you know. I mean, I'm not going to pretend we're not. Yeah, take him. You know, we take him to the snow. We get up there. This one year, his name is Mikey, and, he, and it's a big auditorium like this with a 1,000 students. He's sitting in the, you know, all my kids thought they were thugs, and so they always sit in the back. I didn't care. I don't care what they thought. I just wanted to get them in the room where they could hear about Jesus Christ. And so he's in the back row, and they do this, you know, message tonight, and the guy preaches. We prayed over him. We've been praying over our kids for like three months. And come on forward, and hundreds of kids come forward, and then they're praying over him, and I'm praying over him. We got our staff, and I'm making sure our staff is praying over our kids, and all this is happening. And then, and then the speaker will say, hey, the rest of you, if you're already done business with God and you're taking care of you guys, can go, go, go out, just quietly leave while everybody else respect their time. Everybody leaves the room except for these hundred are up forward, but Mikey stays in the back row. And so I'm like, this is interesting. So I sit by Mikey, go, Mikey, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. I go, do you think God's trying to to open your eyes to him? I don't know. Do you think God's trying to draw himself to you or draw yourself to him? I don't know. Do you you have any questions about this God thing and and whether or not it's true or false or or any questions that we could help you with as as you consider your own spiritual journey with God? He goes, I don't know. And I said, Mikey, we're going to wait till you know. Maybe you're not supposed to do that, but I just... We're going to wait till you know. Uh, there's no pressure, bro. I'm not here to pressure you into anything. But if God's drawing you, I'll just tell you, 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 can't, you cannot reject him. Fast forward a year later. Same thing. We go to camp. It's almost like Mikey is sitting in the exact same section. It's decision night. We prayed over the, the, the speaker. We prayed over our kids. People come forward. Other kids leave. And Mikey's sitting, sitting, sitting in the same seat almost, almost the same row. Again, and this time, this is 12 months later, I walk up to him and I say, Mikey, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. I go, man, do you remember we did this 12 months ago, Mikey? We just did this. Like you were here and in this room and, 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 and something happened and, 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 and you're here again. He goes, yeah. I go, is, do you think God's doing something? He goes, I don't know. But I tell you this. This time, I can't leave the room. I can't leave the room. The presence of God had fallen on that place. And this kid recognized it. Even though he had no spiritual outlook in his whole life. And I just cannot leave the room. I know something's going on here. And I got to get a piece of it before I go. So we prayed with him to accept Christ. The next morning during worship was awesome. We sang this song. Let's lift your hands and turn around. See the light that I have found. And for the first time, Mikey could say, I found the light. And sing that genuinely. There's something that happens in the 
this arena where a collective group of believers get together, where they represent the very temple of God now, sacred spaces in this room, not because of the chairs, not because of the screens, not because of the instruments, not because of anything physical in the room. Sacred space is in this room because you are in this room. And you represent, in a lot of ways, the very conviction of God that can come on someone else just by the way you participate in worshiping him. Man, I'm telling you, that's powerful. That's why I told Kelly, I said, one of these days, I don't know when, I don't know when they're going to give me the okay to do this or when we're going to have money to do this, but we're going to have lights, and they're going to be white lights, and we're going to turn off the lights on the stage, and we're going to throw white lights on the audience. And I say, Kelly, make it as awkward as possible and tell them to sing. And if they don't sing, then they can just be rebuked by God. Because if they do sing, and if they do participate, and they do acknowledge God and give God everything in worship, the people in the room who don't know him will say to themselves, God is here. I don't want to do church, guys. I'm not about doing church. God is either here or he isn't. I want to be where he's at. That's what I want. And I want to see him move. And if there's some way, something in me that can say your special presence is welcome here, it is welcome here. In my own heart as a leader, I say, it is welcome here, Lord. You are welcome here. So it happens in our worship, the very presence of God in our midst. What a beautiful thing that we could say the cloud of God, the glory of God could rest in this room. How? Why? It's because he's an imminent God, a God who, who draws close. He's not a disinterested God or an impersonal God like Eastern religions talk about. He's not the God of deism where, where he, he winds the clock of time and walks away. No, this God is the God of the Bible that says, I want an intimate and personal relationship with you even though you don't deserve me. That's what it says. So which is true? Is he near? Is he far? Is he close? Or is he set apart? And the answer is both. He's both. He's both. Big idea today. God is purposeful in being both near and far away. God is purposeful in being both near and far away. And we see that in the theological sense when we talk about the musical worship environment of the church. When we talk about sacred space. And we also see it in our everyday lives. Let me show you what I mean. There's an ancient story. A guy who is sold out for God, completely believer in Jesus Christ, no question. A guy who would be remembered for his courage in the face of adversity, the type of adversity that would end up losing your life, that kind of adversity. He was known for his gumption. That in the face of people, as he's, as he's being accused, that he would still stand up and, and proclaim and represent Jesus to them even knowing that it could lead to his own death. It's even said that those people would look at him and see a face of an angel as he spoke, but it wouldn't deter them from their bloodthirsty ambitions until the point had come. There's a point in the story where, where either he's going to backtrack from what he's saying, sparing his own life, or he's going to double down on what he's saying in representing Jesus Christ. He looks up at that point. Like he looks into the heavens and he sees the very throne room of God and Jesus. As if God was saying, I know this is a pivotal point in the story. 
Trust me now. Double down. Have more confidence. This is when I'm closest to you. That's exactly what he does. After seeing a picture of God, he doubles down on his stubborn representation of Jesus. The mob drags him into the center of the city where they delight in killing him. Interestingly enough, his dying words were a prayer to God. Hey, don't, don't, don't take this against them. Almost the very words of Jesus when he's dying on the cross. Don't use this against them. Don't, don't blame them for this, God. Even as he died, he's still trying to reach the very grip that's killing him. It's a true story. It's a story of Stephen. We find it in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. But I wonder about that story. And I challenge you with this question. Was God near in that story or was he far? Which one was he? Was he near or was he far? It almost seems like he was near in the sense that he opened up the heavens and he could see Jesus. I'm with you even in the hard times. But it seems like he was far at the same time because he didn't deliver him from that situation. Why wasn't he delivered? Interesting part of this story that people don't usually recognize is there's a byproduct of this story. There was a guy watching that whole thing. In fact, some people believe that he was authorizing the whole thing. He was overseeing it. He was in charge of the whole killing and martyrdom of Stephen. This guy's name was Saul, and he'd watch the whole thing go down and watch Stephen go down. Eventually, this guy would have a come-to-Jesus moment, a, a true conversion experience, and his name would become Paul, and he would write the majority of the New Testament. As if God was saying, sometimes I'm far away from you because I want to be near to someone else. I can imagine that conversation that happened between Stephen and God. Well, why didn't you show up? I don't understand. I was living for you. Why didn't you show up? And God said, thank you for being the very embodiment of Jesus Christ in that situation. I had to be far away from you so I can begin the process of reaching Saul, who would become Paul, who would write the majority of the New Testament. Thank you for, for being willing to let me be in charge. But know this. I was never as far away as I seemed. In those times, I was carrying you. God is purposeful in being near and far away. Why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes, and let me just ask some questions between you and God that you could maybe begin to try to answer and consider. This is for everybody. As we just meditate in your heart, is there something in your life that causes you to reject the idea that God is close? Some occurrence, some experience in your life that, that makes you not believe that he's close at all. You're holding him hostage because of the past situation. You didn't like that he didn't show up like you expected him to. Maybe that's the very thing that's tripping you up in your worship of God. It's the very reason why you can't sense him close to you in worship, because you're bitter at him. Why not ask his forgiveness for it? Except while it didn't turn out like you expected that he's still in control. Submit to his control. That somehow you were carrying me in that. I'm talking about the divorce. I'm talking about the physical abuse. I'm talking about the molestation. I'm talking about the rejection, the abandonment. I'm talking about the rape. I'm talking about the betrayal. Submit to his control. 
that even when I feel you're far, I know you're near. And if you're here today and you're new to our community, maybe you just say to yourself, I don't know much about what's going on, but I know that last passage when we're sensing God and I know all that feeling, man. I know when I sense God in the room. And it's a beautiful thing. Some of us have forgotten that and need to figure out how to find it. And you're here as a new person saying, man, I can sense when he's in the room with me. I'd love to introduce you to this God who took our sin on the cross, bore our penalty, and after paying for our penalty with his death, he rose again on the third day, defeating death forever as a deposit of what happened to us so that we could defeat death in all of eternity as well. Do you want this, God? It could be yours. You just place your faith in him this morning and say, I believe on the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And you can start your spiritual journey today. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and he'll save you. Father, I... Uh, Maybe I'm an old soul. I don't know what it is. I, I still believe in the special presence of God. The presence, that show, the presence that showed up in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The presence that showed up in the temple of the Old Testament. And that we are the temple and we are the consecrated or set apart utensils for worship of God. And that as we give you our all in worship, and as we say, you are holy and mighty, and we, we believe in your transcendence and, and, and grace us with your eminence, we know you're far apart. We know you're a supreme being. Would you join us in the room that you will show up? You'll show up like a cloud, and your glory will fill the room that we could sense you here. And then when somebody from the outside comes in and goes, I don't know what's going on there, but I know when I step in that room and when those people start singing and when they worship their God, oh my gosh, something is real. Would you make it happen? It's evangelism in the midst of our worship. Not that we would cater our worship to evangelism, no. Our worship is evangelistic. As we acknowledge you and place you on the throne and your glory fills this place, I pray that you'd do it. I pray you help me lead it. And I pray that, that people, that our church would be known for it. That church sings. That church worships God. I don't know about any other church, but I know when I'm in that church and in that building with those people, I sense the very presence of God in the room. We ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.